You're listening to Diamond and Human. Dang it. <laughs> Podcasts from the pub. This is The Pitch. Hello and welcome to a special bonus features edition of The Pitch. In our previous episode, we took on the rom-com genre, thinking about what makes a good rom-com film, what makes a less successful rom-com film, and then both James and myself pitched our own ideas for a new movie. During that episode, we also featured clips from an interview with international best-selling author Vari McFarlane. Hello. Hello, Vari. Hello, Nathan. We we speak again. (laughs) Yeah, we had to do the interview twice because... Well, let's just say because I'm an idiot. By the time we chatted again, there had been a couple of high-profile articles about inequality in the film industry, and so that was a new question to throw at Vari as well. Well, as well as basically trying to steal her ideas and copy her process. When reading all three of Vari's books, number four is out in April 2016, I was struck by how easy it was for me to imagine them on the big screen. I assumed this was all by design, so I wanted to kick off by asking Vari how visual the writing process was for her and whether she pictured it cinematically. Um, I, I would love to say, yes, it's this giant George R. R. Martin-style canvas in my head, but the truth of the matter is, no, I tend to focus um, in on characters. So, obviously, you are picturing the setting. You've chosen a certain city, you choose locations and all the rest of it. Um, I, I don't sit there with a kind of panoramic uh, view of um, how it would look on screen, which which I think would be a bit kind of, you know, if wishes were horses, unhelpful anyway. I mean, everyone has their writing process and you do what you need to do to get the book done. Um, trying to imagine the working title, <laughs> multi-million pound film while you're writing, I think would be a, a bit of a distraction, if I'm honest. <laughs> it does seem you have really clear um settings in in your books and your stories oh, particularly um so it didn't make me think are are they based on real ones so particularly thinking of newcastle which it really felt like it was you were writing in the city as you read it were, were they real places or do you try and think um, as in as in once you're in a city when i write a kind of certain place is that place real yeah, like, are uh, you basing this on a, a bar you've actually been to or an office you've seen? Well, it's a, that's a good question. Sometimes it's a, it's a pretty kind of 50-50 split. A lot of the time I'm writing places that I've actually been. And with It's Not Me, It's You in Newcastle, I actually did, for the first time, did a proper research trip. Um, research trip in heavily inverted <laughs> commas. Uh, <laughs> wandered around all the pubs and bars. Um, so I went to places that are featured in the book. Um, so, for example, Rasa. Um, and, um, but, but then you start mixing things up so um paul's pub in the book is um a pub called the bridge but i just repurposed it for his pub but then they go to i think it's the crown posada and that is a real place again so you're always kind of repurposing and then later on in the book um delia goes to a very pretentious restaurant which between me you and the podcast um was inspired by dabu um, but I didn't actually want, I thought it would actually just be more fun to make up a restaurant. So the restaurant called Apricity in there is just the kind of, you know, it's got all the hallmarks of the, um, you know, the ridiculous signature dish and the tempestuous uh, rock and roll chef that's been in the Observer Food Monthly and everything. So sometimes sometimes just freeform invention is really fun. But I think people would become a little bit disorientated if you picked a city they knew and then proceeded to describe a bunch of places that aren't really there. Um, yeah, yeah. Also it's also it's quite a 
good bit of fun being from a provincial town like I am. If you see us read a story or it's in a film, you're like, oh, I've been there. It's kind of a nice. Yeah, thrill. it's really thrilling, isn't it? And I mean, uh, and I mean, this is you know possibly part of a, a different, larger conversation. But I mean, I have said many a time I got so fed up with chick lit that it was just always, always these glitzy, ritzy. You know, there I was at the Bellagio or whatever. Why can't you have an incredibly romantic meeting at Weatherspoons in Derby? It sounds unlikely, but there's 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 the challenge for fiction. Right? right there. <laughs> Looking at it from our point of view playing fantasy movie producer, I wanted to get a heads up on how writers might respond to their book being adapted and what it'd be like seeing your work interpreted. If one of her books were to be produced as a film, how much control over what we see on the screen would Vari want? Maybe this is a, a classic newbie attitude, but my, my feelings on it would be, I would like, there's a clause my, my screen agent told me about, meaningful consultation, which, you know, means that they are going to check things with you and they're going to run things by you and see broadly what you feel about something. Um, I think when it comes to interfering, you see what happens when um, allegedly E.L. James was all over the Fifty Shades film, making a complete nuisance of herself, being on set, wouldn't let them change things. And, you know, her argument was, oh, it's for the fans, it's for the fans. But I, I just think it's a different beast. It's a different medium. There's people involved who are experts in that medium. Unless you feel that it's such a catastrophically awful decision that somebody's making, it's going to rip the heart and soul out of the entire reason that you ever wrote the thing in the first place, which, let's face it, most decisions aren't that. I just think you should butt out probably as an author. I think it's a lot healthier to do that. Um, unless, I mean, it, it depends. If you're writing the screenplay, obviously, then you've already got a more intimate level of involvement with the whole thing. But just in terms of authors just being sharp elbowed, I think that the the job of adapting is always taking the spirit of the thing and saying the same thing in a different way. And I don't think necessarily as the person who said it one way the first time, you're the best person to then act as translator. But I've just managed to insult anyone who's ever read the screenplay of their <laughs> own novel. There, I don't mean I don't mean it like that. I, I mean in terms of really getting involved in every you know last bit and cough of what's happening. Yeah, because I guess if it was the other way around and someone had the a film and just the screenwriter said, well, I've never written a novel, can't be that hard, I'll write it. People would look at them funny, yet we kind of expect sometimes the author of the book yeah. to go, well, you should write the screenplay. Yes, yes, that's true. I mean, this is just a world I don't know much about. I mean, there are people um, like, say, David Nichols, who are just ridiculous bloody polymaths and just flip between being able to be, you know, an adapter of classic things, write his own screenplays um, and write novels. Um, I think a lot of the time there is an argument for, you know, maybe maybe the author kind of having a role, having a say, having an influence. But I think that you, you've got to be a diplomat, surely, because if you're not, then you have the E.L. Uh, James situation where they're all apparently at daggers drawn over one word, which, do you know what? I'm going to go out of limb and guess it wasn't a very good one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I had seen a quote by Vari in an interview with the Huffington Post. Oh, I'm being quoted back to myself. Yeah. This is very exciting. And, uh, I hope I don't sound like a dick. No. <laughs> where she was asked about the most challenging aspect of writing a novel. And she gave an answer that said, plotting is hard, but it's also bringing together all of these different elements. I wanted to know whether Vari had a strategy for this, as I was clearly thinking about stealing it for James and I. Did she start with a clear plan, like a wall of notes? No, I don't. Well... There's kind of, there's prosaic and artistic reasons for this. I mean, I so far have been um, and will continue, in fact, to write a novel a year. Um, and I that is a 
pretty brisk schedule. You know, you, you say a year, and even I, before going into the industry, would have thought, oh, a year, that's not bad. Um, in reality, in reality, if someone said to you, write 10 university dissertations in a year, it, you know, which is equivalent length, you'd start to go, oh, this deal doesn't sound quite so great. Um, so, I mean, to be honest, the, the, the kind of wall of record cards I tend to think of as a little bit of fanning around. Uh, there isn't an awful lot of fanning around uh, in that schedule. Um, I also think that you've got to... If you plan everything, every last bit and cough, and if you're writing a very intricate crime novel or perhaps a Game of Thrones where, my God, you know, how does he keep track of all those characters? I'm sure that, that kind of that sort of planning is very important. Um, I think that if you're writing something a little bit less intricate, I think that you've got to leave some surprises for yourself as the author because that's how you maintain your own interest. And if you've literally gone right, you know, da dum da dum da dum, this happens in this chapter, I think your will to write the thing would start to mm. ebb a little bit. Um, and, you know, you get people who take this to the absolute other extreme. So, for example, Stephen King is absolutely adamant that he never ever starts a novel knowing what's going to happen to his characters and he sees it as binding them up tight and letting them work themselves free. And his argument is, if I don't know how it's going to end, how can a reader possibly second guess it? I'm not that bold. <laughs> I need to know where things are going because, again, when you're on a schedule, you don't want to write 40,000 words and realise actually you were just heading down a dead end. Um, so, yeah, so I, it's a mixture. I definitely have an outline. I definitely have a sense of a few major incidents along the way. And I definitely have a sense of the destination um, because I think particularly with romantic comedy, I think that kind of... Um, you know, that shapes it. I mean, for example, David Nichols' One Day, you can't possibly imagine him writing that. No no spoilers here, but you can't imagine writing that and not knowing that's where the story was headed, ultimately. Um, it, you know, there's a very obvious kind of choices and build towards that ending. So I'm, I'm never completely sure about people who say, I don't know how it's going to end. I mean, yeah. it's clearly, it's done Stephen King no harm. There is also a school of thought that these are such kind of talented writers and writing writing within a form um, that they, um, they have internalised a certain amount of good storytelling techniques so that they you know there's a certain amount of subconscious stuff going on so they can get away with all the fly by seat of your pants and it also you know all this stuff about um you know what, what's your process and what's your day writing day like yeah, everyone's so obsessed with all that stuff but the thing the weird thing about writing is of course it's completely and utterly individual so there's as many answers as there are, are authors so it only ever comes down to i think well what works for you what actually gets words on the page and produces words you're happy with by the end of the day you know so just just because I plot a bit, other people will plot it up to the hilt and do really well from that. Other people will just go, right, page one, off I go. Do you, do you have a set of essential ingredients you think, I definitely know this has to happen in my book? Yes, I think um, I would, I mean, I don't know, you could probably argue this is true, true of any novel. I think conflict is absolutely essential. I think that there is... It, there's nothing more boring than than a couple that look predestined to be together from the start, and then the, you know the course of love the course of love has to not run smooth, doesn't it? Um, and I also think that um, you know I, I think I, I think I just like writing people having really big barneys at each other. Um, so yeah, there will always be. I think there's, there needs to be big showdowns. I think there's also there's got to be an element of misunderstanding. Um, and what's why one of the reasons Jane Austen is so completely brilliant with with say a classic like Pride and Prejudice is that it's partly that they don't understand each other and it's partly that they don't like each other and they change over the course of the book. So I think I think um, when you go 100% on misunderstandings, it doesn't ring true to people and it's quite naff. 
and shallow. So, it, but but there always has to be a, a kind of because because that's the kind of the intrigue and suspense in a romantic comedy novel, isn't it? That that you don't quite know what the other person is thinking, and sooner or later someone misreads something and goes off on goes off on one. Um, what else? I think you've got to have your big you've got to have your big romantic scenes as well. I mean, it's what I it's what I would buy my books for if I wasn't me. <laughs> That just sounds weird now and egotistical. I just mean that you want you want the kind of you want the conflict, but you also want the swoon and you want the um I don't ever put the airport dash in, but you always want that sense that, you know, there's a ticking clock and there's only so much time. Um and I, I was working with um a, a script editor a while back and she had a really good phrase where she said you've got to feel that these two people would live a better life together than they would live apart or with anyone else so you're always trying to do that build of these two people have something really quite special here that's really quite unusual you know it's because then it, let's face it anyone can invent two attractive people who'd quite like to sleep with each other um but there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of peril in that yeah i guess it's also the sense of hope that that generates as the reader you want to feel yeah. as hopeful as the characters maybe do as well the Yes. Oh my God. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. But it's also we talked about this before, but I definitely want to make sure we get this in the podcast. Of from your characters, um, there's a real sense of they are in that moment that there's not a predictability. And I was just wondering how much do you let your characters, once you've got them, steer the plot? Um, I've I've had that nice weird magic thing that sounds really lovely sometimes of a character has just told me that they would um do do more i mean just off the top of my head in my second book um here's looking at you i invented this it was such fun to write but really obnoxious laddish complete ledge vile best mate of of our hero and it, our hero's kind of journey is realizing that he keeps some pretty shitty company um and he kind of suggested himself he started off quite a small character and he just suggested himself as a bit of a villain to kind of get in between the um the hero and heroine a bit more so definitely sometimes you just enjoy writing someone or occasionally you and this is this happens so rarely but it's so much fun when it does literally something just comes out of their mouth when you write the dialogue that changes the plot that makes you go oh god yeah i didn't know they were going to do that um that's it sounds ridiculous but that is quite that is quite fun um in terms of letting major characters guide their story you're always on i think you're always on the lookout for the sense that the plot is puppeting your characters around i think that that is something that rings so false to a reader and it irritates the hell out of me when i see it you think they wouldn't do that why have they done that and then either two chapters or two episodes later, you go, oh, they had to do that, so that could happen. What a load of arse. Yeah. So I try to not not do that. What I wouldn't do, I don't think, because to go back to our conversation about plotting, I don't think I would necessarily let a major character decide a completely different ending halfway through because, as I say, I have a sense of where the story's going. So I don't think I would just suddenly dodge them, you know, hit another dodge them car and veer off dramatically in another direction. But it might, so it might be a little bit of problem solving of oh it feels like this character needs this yeah so it's far more I... it's far more problem solving and obviously your editors get involved in that because when they look at the overall structure of the book and the the plot and the pace and everything they will be obviously very quick to say this this section doesn't ring true or you know we're not really understanding her motivations here um, but yeah in terms of just I think that's a different writing technique to mine to get halfway through a novel and say do you know what the I mean maybe maybe it's yet to happen to me I mean every book is different but yeah I mean for example. 
example, it was really nice that you had me at hello, but I, a lot of people said, oh, I wasn't sure what ending, you know, right up until the last page, I wasn't sure what I was going to get. Um, and so um, that's really, you know, lovely feedback to have. But I, but I, as the author, obviously knew from page one that that was where it's all going. So well, that, that leads on very nicely, because I think um, from your point of view, your writing, you said you weren't, there's an element of maybe. Would it be really unsatisfying if the main couple didn't get together at the end, do you think? No, not necessarily. And um, my publisher is very good on that. And there, there is absolutely no pressure on me that they say, you know, we want you to deliver a girl meets boy and eventually they walk off hand in hand into the sunset. They're very open to sad endings, open endings. I mean, it's, I, I don't want to name specific things because then you start spoiling all over the place. But there has been some pretty big romantic novel hits of the last few years that have had sad endings where people do not end up together one way or another um so i, I you know it's certainly not a, um, a commercially bad idea um I, I guess it's also specific to the to the story so there are some stories where i think you know the, the for example again trying not to spoil i you know my latest novel doesn't perhaps end in an entirely expected way Ooh. Although I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it um, a weepy. So I guess there are some stories where if they didn't end up together, I mean, when Harry met Sally, I think is all the better film for the fact that they end up together. Um, Bridget Jones, you know, she, you want her to be with um, Mark Darcy at the end or whatever. Um, so yeah, so you know, it's it's specific to the project, but in terms of it being an absolute essential to romantic comedy, no, I don't think it is. A quick reminder that as well as being able to catch up with both of our podcasts via the website diamondandhuman.co.uk and via our Twitter and Facebook, you will also be able to catch us on our extra special arena tour. Yes, it is only one date and yes, it is in the studio of the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton, but we don't care. It's our arena tour. Tickets are free obviously and we'll be there on monday the 26th of october from 7 30 p.m recording live episodes of both the pitch and let the music play on and inviting you to join in too details are on the website Back in February, Patricia Arquette spoke out at the Oscars about the pay gap in the film industry between men and women. And then in September, Emily Watson found herself criticised for saying that addressing equal pay wasn't her personal quest. She had actually said there is a question to be answered. But the headlines were already written, only to be replaced by Marion Cotillard by the time myself and Vari spoke. The Oscar-winning French actor had said that filmmaking is not about gender and she didn't qualify herself as a feminist. She'd been asked about the lack of diversity at Cannes and had concluded that you can't ask the president of Cannes to have five films by men and five by women. I wanted to get into this by asking Vari about how romantic comedy is often dismissed or sneered at as a genre and whether this was due to it being predominantly seen as by women and for women. Um, yes, I mean, I personally, I've been very fortunate, I think, and um, it Having, you know, firsthand, I've not experienced much um, disdain and dismissal. But I think in general, yes, I think it's pretty scandalous that, you know, uh, I always say this, but you, you have this, this kind of argument, oh, it's really predictable. Like you were just saying earlier about the action genre 
or, you know, your James Bonds or whatever, everyone knows that there is no way that a James Bond film ends with a villain having won and, you know, James Bond in a bloodied heap. Everyone knows it's he's going to win the day, but it's the pleasure of the journey. And for some reason, with well, for woman reason, with romantic comedy, something that becomes very sneered at. And my, my other real bugbear is... It's the idea that kind of writing about relationships and love is kind of mm, stupid. And you think, hang on a minute, just about every single story you see, uh, you know, on screen or in a novel, there is a love story element to it. But somehow when you make it the genre, when you make it the point, it gets a lot of kind of condescension. And I don't understand it. And I think that then there's another element to it that I think people think what is easy to watch or easy to read is easy to create. And I would strongly suggest that they just have a little bash at it, see if it, see how easy it is, because actually from the other side, it's not easy. Would she see it as important to have a female director in charge of adapting her books? No, no I don't, because um, I... I I think it's, don't get me wrong, I think it's a, it's a sexist industry and the, um, you know, the um, screen industry. And I think that the uh, any sort of advantages for women should be gratefully seized upon. I would never, ever turn around and say, mm, not having a male screenwriter write my write my um, screenplay just on based on uh, sex, because if that's the best person for the job, if it's a great script and they really understand the characters and they're writing something that speaks to a, to a largely female audience, then I, I don't really see the rationale of then saying, no, 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 it's got to be, I'm just going to exclusively want women hired onto this um, and I you know I don't want to be read as good for a female writer I want to be read as a good writer. In the last couple of weeks Jennifer Lawrence has spoken out about her anger for not speaking up about the difference in pay compared with her male co-stars and then Emily Blunt stated in a recent Radio Times interview that she thinks we need to do more and stop talking about it. She suggested writing programs for female writers as an example. I think the difficulty is headlines being generated and that becomes talked about rather than the situation actually being improved. And even in our conversation, Vari and I realised the inherent difficulty in leaving yourself open to misinterpretation. Although she didn't say the same as Emily Blunt, Vari did have quite a straightforward summation. I think the best people for the job, but I think that you I think you tackle sexism uh, in in better ways than just saying I, I would want a woman in every position of power on this. I think that, for example, if you tell really good stories that speak to women's lives, that that are, are feminist stories and get them made, I think that's a far more useful thing to do than um, I'm going to end up using that dread phrase, quota filling, than quota filling kind of key creative positions. If, it, if you know, if the best person in the job is, is a woman, then absolutely, you know, why on earth not? But um, I mean, it's, it's funny because then I think about Sex in the City and I remember people having a real issue sometimes the fact that it's the writing team I think was, was gay men but early I mean let's put the films to one side which clearly are a kind of cinematic holocaust but the t- the early tv series I think was actually pretty good and it's in its own its own strange kind of alternative universe way actually had some really god observations about female life and you know you had this cast of of women that were you know not their, their primary goal in life was not finding Mr. Right which I think actually was a bit of a step forward as much as it was a relationship show now if the writing's good and the writing's speaks to me, then I don't see why I would then get hung up on, well, you know, who had testicles in the writer's room. Um, yeah. I think we can't talk about romantic comedies and this being a film podcast and you being a writer without asking, what are your standouts of the genre? Oh, God, I always end up saying the same things. Um because obviously I guess my favourites don't change. Um, Pride and Prejudice is just, I, re- I reread that every year and it's my absolute favourite. Um 
Um, I'm a huge fan of David Nichols, as I always say. I thought One Day was absolutely amazing. Um, Film-wise, what, what romantic comedy films? I tend to go back to quite cheesy ones that I don't want to admit here, actually. <laughs> there's, a, there's a film called God, I Love It, and no one agrees with me, but it's really funny as well. What's called, that one, sorry? Called Never, it's called Never Been Kissed, with Drew Barrymore in it, where she goes back undercover. It's the most hilarious high concept as well. She goes back undercover as a... As a um, Chicago Sun reporter back to her old high school where she was really, really bullied and then she finds a way to become popular and triumphs over them all. Um, and then, you see, the creepy element is that um, she, that she ends up in a romance with a teacher in it. So, yeah, it's a bit, bit pre-U-Tree, the whole thing, really. Scandalous. Yeah, but, but yeah, in terms of like the really kind of big famous ones, I thought the first Bridget Jones film was everything. I know people can be down on it, but I think um, that is everything you want from a romantic comedy film. I thought it was really sparkling and funny and Renee Zellweger was absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm not quite sure what went wrong in the second one, but I thought the first one was amazing. I think the I think the humour needs to um, to massively get updated in romantic comedy films because you see something like I don't know if you saw uh, Friends with Benefits, which was the Justin Timberlake Mila Kunis film, mm-hmm. but the first ten minutes of that are really really funny and really quite filthy and and in your face, and I think like when when I was talking to the film people about you had me at hello I was saying you know think peep show think the in-betweeners like i want that kind of really scabrous genuinely funny laugh out loud humor not all this kind of slightly like oh i've broken my stiletto in a grate whilst running to catch the bus in the rain kind of crap do you know what i mean i think i think that there's been a failure i think the reason the genre in cinema is in a bit of the doldrums is i think there's been a failure to kind of just stay sharp and catch up and that women don't really want that kind of patronizing tampax advert humor would you and you probably aren't allowed even to admit this do you have like a fantasy creative team for your books and think, oh, I really hope it's them directing and I hope they cast this person? Um, you do, ooh. don't you? That pauses. Um, yes. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. I always get this question about, you know, who have you imagined as your heroine, hero and heroine? And I actually, surprisingly for me, given how stupid and superficial and shallow I am, I never actually play those games. Um, I think Emma Stone is just amazing. I think she's absolutely got it all. And I think she's one of those people who will still be, you know, she'll be some kind of Meryl Streep figure, won't she, in like 30 years' time. She's just, yeah, she's amazing. Um, she can't believe it. She's not English. What's going on? I know, I know. Well, well, I assumed here, Nathan, I was allowed a complete flight <laughs> fantasy where it was Hollywood. Um, in terms of British actors, um, I don't know, Richard Madden out of Game of Thrones because I fancy him. Is that any use? <laughs> I tell you, I tell you what, the um, Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong, who who write Peep Show and are booked up to the back end of Beyond, and also actually the guys who wrote um, In Between Us, I think they're all very, very talented. If someone said they're going to take a pass through through a, through a screenplay for your film, then I would be pretty happy with that. I have to say. Brilliant. So let's make that happen. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you very much, and thank, thank you. you. No, thank you brilliant. very much. huge thank you to Vary McFarlane for joining us. You can hear how we stole liberally from this for our film ideas in the previous episode of The Pitch on our website, where you can also find links to find out more about Vary and her books, which we strongly recommend you go and read if you haven't already done so. This has been a special bonus features episode of The Pitch with me, Nathan Human. James will be back with me for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.